This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 23, recorded on December 5th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lars Wagner. Welcome, Lars. Hi, Tim. Thanks for being here. Uh, Today, we're going to do another round-robin session like we did last time. Uh, This time, though, we're going to focus on neuroblastoma. And I guess today, it's going to be more of a jeopardy. We've got a number of different categories of topics. We've sort of pulled out about 20 topics, 20 papers from the literature and we'll see what we can get through. The categories today are epidemiology and risk stratification, clinical trials, ALK, and new targets. Maybe we'll get one in there of genetics and other aspects as well. A couple of emails I wanted to read real quick that came in. Appreciate our listeners giving us some feedback. Uh, One of them came in a little while ago, and we're late getting to it, and it referred uh, to a previous episode uh, episode number 17 from Laura, who is president of a sarcoma foundation. She said, thank you for featuring Dr. Lesnick. It was most informative. My daughter has received frontline treatment for stage 4 Ewing sarcoma and is six months off treatment. She has had two sets of clear scans. We have established a foundation to raise funds for research and awareness of AYA sarcomas, helping to discover novel treatments for all Ewing patients, but most especially our own daughter is our goal. Please keep me informed of podcasts, especially related to Ewing's and other AYOSA sarcomas. Sorry to hear about your daughter, Laura, but thank you for that email, and hopefully some of what you've been learning through the podcast can help, and great to hear that you're trying to raise money for that. And then we, just after we recorded last week's episode on brain tumors, we received an email from Alex, who said, Hello, my name is Alex. I am an MD-PhD student that is currently in the lab of Dr. Susie Baker down at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. I think many of our listeners, including myself, would find it interesting to hear Lionel Chow, MD-PhD, talk about pediatric high-grade gliomas, both from a clinical and basic science perspective. What do you think? Many thanks in in advance, and keep the podcast coming. So thank you, Alex, for giving us some feedback, and we had just answered your request when I got this email. So I think episode 22 has Lionel talking a lot about brain tumors, and we'll get him on more to talk about that. So today we are going to turn our attention to neuroblastoma. Again, as I said last time, we're getting near the end of the year, and I'm falling way, way, way behind in trying to get uh, coverage of many of the papers that were published this past year, so we're trying to do them in bulk. The plan is to just mention the papers briefly and then invite listeners to have us engage in a more prolonged discussion on a future episode if there's one that particularly sounds interesting to you. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to start off with epidemiology and risk stratification. And Lars, you have two papers for us. Yeah, both of these papers come from the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group Project Database. Um, The first paper, um, the lead author is Wendy London, um, and this was published in uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology um, as an EPUB ahead of print on July 18, 2011. 
The title of the manuscript is Clinical and Biologic Features Predictive of Survival After Relapse of Neuroblastoma, a report from the INRG uh, project. And so the purpose of this was to look at risk factors um, that uh, help predict uh, survival uh, after recurrence. And one of the main findings was that, um, as is seen with a variety of pediatric solid tumors, um, the time to first relapse is uh, indeed um, predictive of outcome uh, for patients with neuroblastoma blastoma as well. Um, they identified a particularly high risk time uh, being between 6 and 18 months, meaning that for patients that relapse in that 6 to 18 month window after initial diagnosis, uh, those patients indeed have the highest risk of death. This study did have an interesting finding in that the patients with very early relapse from 0 to 6 months after diagnosis didn't do uh, quite so bad. Um, and that's probably because of the way the data was collected. It, it included variety of patients, including um, many patients with low-stage disease, stage 1, 2, or 3 uh, disease, who may not have received any adjuvant chemotherapy after surgery. So those patients relapsing many times can be uh, salvaged, um, and so that led to um, that interesting result of 0 to 6 months time to first uh, relapse being associated with um, a more favorable overall outcome. So suffice it to say, though, for patients with high-risk Neuroblastoma, uh, a relapse within 6 to 18 months is a independent bad factor um, that is associated with poor survival. The reason all of this may be important is that then this information now can be used for risk stratification in terms of study designs. For example, randomized phase 2 trials of patients with relapsed neuroblastoma could consider this as a factor in which to randomize patients to allow for better equity between uh, two treatment arms. Well, I think that's a common theme among several of these papers. We're going to talk about risk stratification today. And in the end, as different people, as we'll see, come up with various strategies to risk, risk stratify, we'll have to see how these all piece together as one time to relapse sounds like it's an important feature to be considered. What about your other paper? The second paper is also from the INRG um, database, and it's um, the lead author is Dr. Taggart. Paper is entitled "Prognostic Value of Stage 4S Metastatic Pattern and Tumor Biology in Patients with Metastatic Neuroblastoma." diagnosed between birth and 18 months of age. We've known for quite some time that neuroblastoma has a subset of patients that have this uh, particularly interesting metastatic pattern called the 4S pattern um, where metastases are found in the skin, in the liver, um, a limited amount of bone marrow involvement, and importantly, uh, no cortical bone involvement. And these patients um, uh, typically were designated 4S stage um, if they were in the first year of life. A recent change in the staging um, classification scheme has now included patients up to 18 months of age to be 4S if they have that classic metastatic pattern. And so this study was looking back over time um, at uh, a large number of patients who were treated in the first 18 months of age and trying to identify uh, various prognostic uh, factors for the 4S patients. One of the interesting factors uh, or interesting findings is that um, in the first 12 months of age, uh, the 4S patients do in t indeed tend to do better. But as we get past 12 uh, months in the 12 to 18 month age group, we start to see even in the 4S patients who otherwise had more favorable outcomes, 
the increase in unfavorable biological features, either um, histologic or genetic features such as uh, 11Q or unfavorable uh, histologic findings um, or unfavorable 1P findings, that tended to put the group of patients with 4S disease aged 12 to 18 months at a similar uh, overall outcome as the stage 4 patients. So in a sense you lose that, that group of patients tends to lose some of the improved survival as they get a little bit older and that can be attributed to the increase, uh, relative increase in the um, unfavorable biologic features. So the bottom line here is that while 4S generally does better, it is important to pay close attention to all the biologic features which can allow for further stratification uh, as those groups tend to pull together the 4S and the 4s um, tend to um, become much more similar after 12 months of age. Now that paper used biologic features that are the classic ones, right? So Shimada histology and presence or absence of MYC amplification and not any kind of highly sophisticated genetic analyses or detailed gene expression studies. Uh, correct, although um, some patients did have uh, 11Q and 1P uh, status known as, as well, and then um, the vast, vast majority of them uh, had determination of the NMIC amplification status. So I, I think that's actually a tie-in to the next paper that, that I'm going to present, which is from Clinical Cancer Research, published in February 15th issue, 2011 by a group from Europe, actually a large interdisciplinary group from a number of different countries. So this is really, a, I think, a PSYOP presentation entitled a multi-locus technique for risk evaluation of patients with neuroblastoma. First author is last name Ambrose. And this basically describes a PCR-based technique. They call it MLPA, multiplex ligation-dependent probe amplification. And here they basically state that uh, Chromosomal and gene gains and losses are typically picked up uh, by fish or by other techniques, including PCR, but the ability to do this in one single assay has been difficult, and they developed a multiplex assay that looks at a number of different covers, 19 chromosomal arms and reference loci. In this study, they took their technique and tested it on 310 neuroblastomas and eight cell lines, and we're able to also, with the cell lines, do dilutions to see how much of a percentage of the sample needs to really involve tumor to be accurate. And then they sent this to a number of different labs, or at least a subset of these, eight different labs, and tested to see how well everyone did. And so it's quite an extensive study and a validation of their technology. And they found high concordance in, in almost all of the loci that they tested amongst the different labs. And uh, they were able to categorize a given tumor across a whole range of, of gene amplifications and losses. Therefore, they feel like they've established a nice assay that fulfills the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group criteria in terms of which genes to look at, validated it as something that could be exported to a number of different different laboratories. Now, they haven't taken their data and looked at any kind of outcomes on a per-patient basis, uh, but they did find out that you needed 60% or more of the sample to be involved with tumor to be really reliable. But I think, again, it ties into your paper in that, you know, we need different ways to risk stratify patients. And here's the genetic way. And here is one more step in the evolution of coming up with um, clinically usable assays. The final paper in this category of epidemiology and risk stratification is more of an epidemiologic paper. 
It was published in the European Journal of Cancer in 2011 and was by, again, a large group of folks from a number of different countries. The first author was named Moroz, M-O-R-O-Z. Basically, in this paper, they looked at various characteristics of neuroblastoma patients uh, over time, treated from early as the 70s up to the modern era. The title is Changes Over Three Decades in Outcome and the Prognostic Influence of Agent Diagnosis in Young Patients with Neuroblastoma, a report from the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group Project. And they looked at uh, a lot of different Kaplan-Meier curves, various stages and different risk categories, and over the different eras. So if people want to look at lots of Kaplan-Meier curves, this is a good paper to look at. Uh, but basically, in the end, they validated what we all know, that we've improved treatment outcomes over time. For example, the three-year event-free survival in the early 70s and 80s was 46% and rose to 71% in the modern era. And they also validated that those who are greater than 18 months are at higher risk than those who are less than 12 months. So the age of diagnosis cutoff of greater than 18 months in the risk stratification that we now use is validated. And then they also validated some of the other known high-risk features such as bone marrow metastases and MIC amplification. Um, I don't know that this added a tremendous amount to our knowledge, but it, it, it is a large number of patients, a large data set, and does give validation to what we thought we knew. Right, and I, I think that this is an important uh, document which kind of confirms that we are slowly making progress. I think that um, because the cutoff year of 2002 was used, um, this report does not necessarily reflect some of the more recent advances in the widespread use of retinoic acid and um, uh, most importantly the monoclonal antibody um, uh, for maintenance therapy. Um, but the, I believe the bottom line is the, the good news is we're making progress and the bad news is we're making progress slowly. So uh, continued effort is needed to, uh, to keep up the uh, changes that have been made so far. Absolutely. And let's uh, turn our attention to the category of clinical trials. So there were a number of papers published this year regarding evaluation of therapies. We have discussed some of them, but not others. So we've got four papers to talk about. What do you have for us, Lars? First is a report from the Children's Oncology Group who did a pilot uh, induction regimen for uh, high-risk neuroblastoma, which incorporated pharmacokinetically guided topotecan uh, for treatment of newly diagnosed high-risk neuroblastoma. So the idea here was to use the combination of cyclophosphamide and topotecan, but because of the large interpatient variability in, in topotecan pharmacokinetics, the idea was to optimize the topotecan by doing um, pharmacokinetically guided dosing. So this was a pilot study, uh, five uh, COG institutions that gave two courses of cyclophosphamide and PK-guided topotecan uh, together with the rest of an N7 induction regimen for uh, patients uh, with high-risk neuroblastoma. And the main findings were that this is feasible, where you uh, have samples uh, shipped uh, in a timely fashion uh, for real-time PK analysis and dose um, adjustments, um, and that these five centers were able to do that uh, effectively and get doses um, at a more targeted level for the topotecan. The study showed that for these 31 patients, the end of induction response rate was 84%, um, with uh, one patient having progressive uh, disease 
that uh, level of response is uh, good and is maybe favorable or, uh, when compared to other um, induction regimens, although uh, the uh, numbers are relatively small and uh, confidence intervals were not included in this analysis. I think uh, this does show that uh, PK guiding or PK guided pharmacokinetics could perhaps optimize the response. I think on the downside of things that uh, and the authors point out that uh, although it is feasible, current real-time sampling techniques are time and labor intensive and are not likely uh, to be able to be performed in a COG group-wide study because most sites uh, do not have the appropriate infrastructure. And there's not been any randomized comparison about the uh, true extent of benefit from PK-guided uh, dosing of topotecan. You know, PK-guided dosing isn't something we do very often in pediatrics. The only personalization we really do is dosing on a per kilogram or a per meter square basis. And obviously we know that's woefully inadequate in terms of getting a consistent drug exposure. So in theory, this sounds like a great idea, but it sounds like we've got a ways to go before we can make it really practical. Correct. What about your other paper? Uh, the other paper is from the Sloan Kettering Group, which reports on a novel regimen using high-dose carboplatin combined with the regimen of arenatecan and temozolomide uh, as a treatment option for neuroblastoma that has relapsed um, after induction therapy. And so they looked at uh, 45 patients who received uh, the following regimen. The carboplatin was given at uh, relatively high doses, so 500 milligrams per meter squared per day for two days. Um, added onto that was higher than usual doses of temozolomide, 250 milligrams per meter squared per day for five days. And then a five-day course also of arenatecan at the dose of 50 milligrams per meter squared per day, which is more standard dosing for the five-day schedule. So they um, gave this three-drug combination to patients with relapsed or refractory neuroblastoma. Um, the nice thing with this regimen is that the um, uh, prominent toxicities uh, in general are hematologic, and so many of the patients um, were able to be given peripheral blood stem cells to facilitate this relatively uh, intensive therapy. Um, with the use of peripheral blood stem cells, as in a selected fashion in heavily pretreated patients. Um, engraftment in those patients who received um, the stem cells uh, was around days 9 to 14. That compares to uh, patients um, without uh, receiving stem cells who uh, had neutrophil recovery um, between days 20 and 30. The authors report a 68% objective response rate, which included 22% uh, of patients having uh, complete or partial responses um, in the subset of patients that had not um, progressed on therapy. Um, and then uh, the majority of the uh, objective responses reported were mixed or, or uh, minor responses. Uh, so patients looked like they um, had some clinical benefit, um, and some had a, a fair amount of clinical benefit um, with uh, true objective responses. Um, there is a patient population, though, that did not appear to benefit and was not included in that response assessment, and those are patients who had uh, progressed while on therapy. And so uh, this regimen um, could be attractive for patients that have stem cells available that are in good condition and can receive a fairly intensive regimen, particularly if it can be followed with some additional uh, therapy because it's unclear how many courses of this three-drug uh, regimen that an individual patient could tolerate. Were these patients that had already had an autologous stem cell transplant or 
didn't even get to that point yet. Many of the patients, um, I believe, did have a transplant, um, and then some were primary refractory patients who had not yet had a transplant. So the two papers I picked were also deal with autologous transplant, but patients who relapse after transplant, and what do you do with them? Are there any options? Obviously, they're high-risk patients, and both of my papers come from other countries. Both were published in pediatric blood and cancer in different issues, back-to-back -back issues, issue 56 and 57. The one in 56 looked was out of a German group from with uh, first author Thorsten Simon from the University of Cologne, and they basically looked at patients who had failed an autologous stem cell transplant and wanted to determine whether a subsequent transplant would be helpful. So basically, uh, how if we gave another round of intensive therapy, would they do better than if if they didn't? And a total of 451 high-risk neuroblastoma patients one year or older had undergone transplant, and 253 of these experienced recurrence. And of those, 180, 158 received salvage chemotherapy, and 23 of them underwent a full second transplant. So this may not be the same kind of group that we would be looking at in, in our current era now because most patients with these high-risk features are undergoing dual transplants or tandem transplants. So these patients only underwent one and then relapsed. But nevertheless, those 23 who underwent a second autologous transplant had a better median survival of 2.08 years compared to those who had no second chemotherapy, which they only had 0.24 years, and or 135 patients who underwent second-line chemotherapy but not a second transplant whose median survival was only 0 0.89 years. So two years versus less than a year in both of the other kind of categories. So it seemed like in this relatively small group out of their large, larger group of patients who relapsed, seemed like they did benefit from a second transplant. Now the paper, the other paper that came out a month later out of uh, Korea asked a different question. And in this case, these were patients who had already undergone tandem transplants uh, and had failed those. And they wanted to know whether we in this high-risk patient now, could you accept the higher risk of an allogeneic stem cell transplantation? And might you have any evidence of getting graft versus tumor effect, as sometimes happens in leukemia? And so in this case, they just report on six patients who underwent low, reduced intensity allogeneic stem cell transplantation. And uh, they all achieved chimerism. They all had manageable side effects, including graft versus host disease. And there was a tumor response in two of the six patients that was observed after the induction of acute graft-versus-host disease. So they attributed that to graft-versus-tumor. Whether that's really attributable or not, I don't know. But certainly in the other four, uh, they did not see any tumor effect. So they conclude that, yes, it's feasible to do this. There may be some benefit, but not much, although, you know, it is a small, small number of patients. Clearly, we need more therapies or better therapies. Yeah, and it seems like these studies identify one of the big problems that we have in dealing with relapsed patients is that there is a subset that uh, may indeed uh, benefit and perhaps for some lasting period of time from intensive therapy, although many of these patients don't. Um, some of the patients in these studies are somewhat self-selected in terms of their ability to even tolerate um, uh, additional therapy, either from a medical standpoint or from a parental uh, standpoint, being willing to participate with more intensive therapy. 
And the big challenge is trying to identify um, features about these patients um, who may benefit or alternatively who have no chance of benefit from more conventional chemotherapy because undoubtedly these treatments are quite toxic um, and uh, while we're willing to, to do that if there's a good chance of benefit it would be nice to have some way to predict uh, which patients are most likely to benefit from conventional uh, cytotoxic drugs and which patients uh, would be more appropriate for alternative strategies. And in the first paper, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier survival curves, although those who underwent a second transplant benefited, they still, most of them ultimately did not survive. So the overall, uh, I mean, the Kaplan-Meier curve drops to less than 20% by year four. So still, even if there's benefit, these do not represent long-term cures. Let's do two more categories. Let's turn to the big topic of the year or the last few years is ALK and therapy targeting the ALK mutation. And there's a number of papers that came out on that worth mentioning. So as you know, ALK is a hot topic in neuroblastoma, originally found as a cause of familial neuroblastoma, patients that have a high, or families that have a high incidence of neuroblastoma. It's often due to a mutation in the ALK gene. Uh, we've talked about this on previous episodes. Uh, and the, of course, the interest is this as a novel target and what are the determinants of which patients might respond to therapy. So what do you got for us, Lars? So one of the questions is whether we should be looking at ALK mutations or instead um, ALK expression at the RNA or protein level in order to identify uh, patients who um, would be good candidates for ALK-targeted therapy with agents like crizotinib. Um, in this paper that was published in Cell Oncology, uh, in 2011, with the first author uh, being uh, Duchkers. The paper is entitled Anaplastic uh, Lymphoma Kinase Inhibitor Response in Neuroblastoma is Highly Correlated with ALK Mutation Status, ALK mRNA, and ALK Protein Levels. And so they looked at uh, 19 neuroblastoma cell lines um, and uh, found that response to ALK inhibition uh, was significantly correlated with protein levels. Um, and that uh, ALK mutant cell lines were 14.9-fold uh, more sensitive to ALK inhibition than the eight uh, wild-type cell lines. And they concluded that uh, neuroblastoma cell lines often express ALK at high levels and are responsive to ALK inhibitors, and that the mutated cell lines uh, express ALK at higher levels, which may define their superior response to ALK inhibition. This would suggest that at the protein level, that um, may help identify uh, neuroblastomas that uh, could be responsive to uh, ALK inhibition. A separate study uh, looking at a slightly different question um, was put forth by the group uh, led by Schulte uh, et al. Uh, in recently published manuscript in Clinical Cancer Research. This was entitled, entitled High ALK Receptor Tyrosine Kinase Expression Supersedes ALK Mutation as a Determining Factor of Unfavorable Phenotype in Primary Neuroblastoma. And so uh, what they looked at uh, were 263 primary neuroblastomas um, and found that ALK mutations invariably exhibit high uh, elevated ALK expression levels at the RNA level. Um, and uh, furthermore, uh, they showed that tumors that had um, high-level wild-type ALK expression were very similar 
to those with mutations in their global gene expression patterns. And in fact, these two subtypes were characterized by similar prognostic marker profiles and unfavorable clinical course. Not all studies to date have shown that ALK uh, mutations are necessarily correlated with poor outcome, but in this study, the patients with either uh, ALK mutations or the wild-type patients with high ALK expression had a similar worse outcome compared to patients um, who had wild-type low or intermediate ALK expression. And so these data indicate that high ALK expression levels uh, mediate similar molecular functions in primary neuroblastoma with mutated or wild-type ALK, suggesting that uh, ALK inhibitory drugs like crizotinib should be evaluated in second-line treatment strategies um, for patients with elevated ALK expression, not just limited to those with ALK mutations. So, of course, that complicates the plans of a lot of centers to look at sequencing and, and mutations to identify patients who are most appropriate for targeted therapies because now it suggests that one really needs to look at total levels, either mRNA or protein, uh, and in, in some cases perhaps phosphoprotein, so the activated form, to determine whether or not a patient may be uh, responsive to ALK inhibition. Right, because it does seem like there's a subset of patients that have high ALK expression, um, uh, although they're wild type and not mutated, and they tend to have similar uh, gene expression uh, profiles as those with ALK mutations. This whole field is another great example of studying inherited cancers, identifying genes, and then we find that those genes are involved in sporadic cases as well, not unlike the, whole, the old retinoblastoma story. The pa two papers I have on ALK are similar to yours, uh, I think expand the findings a little bit further even, and they came uh, one from last month and one from this month. So the one from November of 2011, it was published in Science Translational Medicine. It is by the the group in Philadelphia at CHOP, John Maris's group in Yale Massé, uh, with the first author of Scott Bressler, entitled Differential Inhibitor Sensitivity of Anaplastic Lymphoma Kinase Variants Found in Neuroblastoma. And interesting here, they had several t models, cell lines and xenograft models, and, and they actually use the ALK inhibitor that's F been FDA approved, crizotinib, which we discussed in TWIPO episode number 19. But in, in this case, they looked to see whether the sensitivity to that particular drug varies depending on the uh, type of mutation. And they found that in, uh, so there's two uh, com relatively common amino acid substitution mutations found in patients. One of them converts the phenylalanine to a leucine, so an F to an L, and that's at position 1174, so it's called F1174L. And the other converts an arginine to a glutamine at position 1275, so that's an R1275Q mutation. They found that the R1275Q mutation, uh, is uh, those cells are sensitive, but in contrast, cells harboring the F1174L mutation were relatively resistant to crizotinib. And like your paper, they also found that in models that had high levels of expression, um, in, in this case, phospho-ALK, so even in the absence of a mutation, were quite sensitive. And in their xenograft models, treatment with crizotinib was able to cure many of the animals if they had the R1275Q mutation or if they had high levels of phospho-ALK. But in those with low phospho-ALK, they only got a even with a wild type, they only got a, a minor response, um, not even a response, just a slowing of the growth of the tumors, but 
ultimately they continued to grow. And in, in those cases where there was relatively little, if no fossil out, they didn't get any effect, and, and nor did they uh, only saw a minimal effect, as I mentioned, with the F1174L. Now, they did do some biochemical studies that suggest a, perhaps a higher dose of the drug would inhibit that mutation, but it's unclear if that dose is achievable in patients, and they suggested that maybe a, a good um, maximum tolerated dose study could be done in, in children to see if they could tolerate a higher dose than what's been described in adults in order to overcome that mutation. But I think this is a very uh, good translational study to look at an FDA-approved drug and to look at you know some of the molecular determinants that might uh, predict whether a given patient might be sensitive to that drug or not, but consistent with, with your papers that uh, suggest really it's more the level and not necessarily um, having that mutation. Uh, but in this case, sometimes the mutation does matter as well. The other paper just came out this month in molecular therapy, and this is more of a Star Wars approach, but an interesting approach nonetheless. So in, instead of using a drug to inhibit ALK, they used an RNA interference approach. Now, we talked a little bit about RNA interference uh, when we talked about inherited risk for cancers with Dicer-1 syndrome in episode 15, and we discussed how there's this whole system of gene regulation based on RNA amounts, and and uh, the Dicer-1 uh, depletes, uh, uses microRNAs to decrease uh, gene expression, and that there are patient, again, uh, an inherited family syndrome of increased incidence of certain kinds of cancers uh, that we're learning from. But in this case, they used that system just to knock down ALK. So they were able to deliver in mice, a, they used a nano-delivery system of small interfering RNA that was based on using antibodies against GD2 incorporated into liposomes that delivered these small RNAs and showed that in cells they were able to induce growth arrest and um, cell suicide or apoptosis and then prolonged survival. And the point of doing this is because uh, this would bypass the um, problems with development of resistance to drugs and also would bypass, for example, the fact that one of the mutation types doesn't respond to crizotinib. So it's kind of a Star Warsy approach. It's not ready for prime time. Using siRNAs to treat patients isn't something that's happening yet. But, but perhaps in the future, and it may have some advantages over some of these other drug kind of studies. So to conclude with these studies, maybe we could say a couple of things. First of all, um, it's likely that not all patients that have ALK mutations may respond to um, crizotinib or other similar ALK inhibitors. And the second is that even uh, patients without mutations, those with so-called wild-type ALK, uh, may still be uh, biologically similar to patients uh, who have mutations um, and can have very high levels of ALK and have uh, similar uh, gene expression uh, signature patterns. Um, and third, um, the levels of RNA or protein uh, may actually be important in identifying patients most likely to respond. I think that's a fair assessment of what we've read in the literature. Now, translating that to actual patient care um, still has a ways to go. Let's briefly touch on new targets before we wrap up, but we're running out of time. So go ahead, tell us about the fancy name of polo-like kinase. Yeah. Sounds like a good sport. <laughs> it's very sophisticated. So polo-like kinase 1, or PLK1, is a small molecule that uh, promotes cell cycle progression by regulating multiple steps during mitosis. So it's a target of the DNA damage uh, 
checkpoint and is essential for mitotic entry after recovery from DNA damage induced arrest. Um, so this is an attractive um, target for a couple of reasons. It uh, seems to be preferentially expressed in unfavorable or high-risk neuroblastoma samples um, as evidenced by a recent report from uh, Sandra Ackerman uh, et al. Uh, from the group in uh, Cologne, Germany. Uh, they reported uh, recently in clinical cancer research um, this year in their manuscript titled Pillow-like kinase 1 is a therapeutic target in high-risk neuroblastoma. So uh, they looked at the uh, target in a variety of um, archival tumors and neuroblastoma cell lines and saw that it was indeed selectively expressed in high-risk tumors um, and then showed that nanomolar uh, dose, doses of BI2536, which is a small molecule inhibitor of uh, PLK1, which is now uh, being studied in adult trials, can cause um, uh, nice in vitro effects, uh, including reduced proliferation, cell cycle arrest, and cell death. Um, and there was also in vivo evidence in uh, a xenograft model. So this is um, a good example of a potentially attractive uh, target selectively expressed in, in the higher risk patients um, uh, using a drug that is uh, already being studied in adult malignancies. Sounds promising. We've got a number of other papers that are also um, discussing promising new therapies, but we really don't have time to talk about them. So I'm just going to mention them. And if listeners want to hear more about them in detail in the future, we can do that or we may even pick one to talk about as well. Um, one is comes out of the Germany, and it's published in the Journal of Cellular and Molecular Medicine, and it's entitled NK Cells, Engineered to Express a GD2-Specific Antigen Receptor Display uh, Built-in ADC-like Activity Against Tumor Cells of Neuroectodermal Origin. So uh, this growing field of cellular therapy, in this case an engineered NK cell directed against a neuroblastoma target, let us know if you want to hear about that. That kind of ties in with Malcolm Brenner's study in blood that was published in October entitled Anti-Tumor Activity and Long-Term Fate of Chimeric Antigen Receptor Positive T-Cells in Patients with Neuroblastoma, so the, the so-called CAR T-cells, this time directed against uh, you know a neuroblast, neuroblastoma antigens, whereas we talked about this whole field uh, directed against NYASO1 antigens and melanoma and sarcomas, synovial cell sarcoma in, in episode number four. So that's certainly a growing field, and we could discuss that in more detail. There was also a paper in the journal called Angiogenesis, published in April, that looked at VEGF and MDM2 inhibition, so the effect of MDM2 and vascular endothelial growth factor inhibition on tumor angiogenesis and metastasis in neuroblastoma. And that's a study out of a group at Texas Children's Hospital and uh, Baylor College of Medicine, also where, where Malcolm Brenner is. And then finally, there was a paper out of Europe looking at long-term outcome of high-risk neuroblastoma patients after immunotherapy with antibody chimeric 14.18 or oral metronomic chemotherapy that was published in BMC Cancer. Certainly, this is a very, very small subset of articles uh, there's a lot of activity studying neuroblastoma around the world. There's a lot of folks looking at various innovative new therapies, and hopefully some of these will get some traction uh, and help us to improve therapy for this disease. There's one paper I forgot to talk about, about risk stratification. So most of the papers we discussed were looking at the genetics and, and known driver mutations or chromosomal loci. There is one paper out there just recently published in October online in clinical cancer research that looked at microRNAs. So again, back to that topic of the DICER-1 and so forth, looking at microRNAs that regulate gene expression. 
This was entitled, MIRNA Expression Profiling Enables Risk Stratification in Archived and Fresh Neuroblastoma Tumor Samples, and they were able to generate a lot of Kaplan-Meier curves separating risks, uh, survival of different patients by the pattern of microRNA expression. So that may be yet another up-and-coming new way to risk stratify patients. And that was by first author Deprater, and it was from a group of uh, European investigators in a lot of different countries, mainly out of Belgium. So lots of activity going on in neuroblastoma, way too much to cover in any one podcast, but we got we scratched the surface. So I think that's probably it for this week. Why don't we sign off? Thanks for being here, Lars. Appreciate your help. Oh, my pleasure, Tim. Again, listeners, please send us an email or log into the iTunes and put a, post a comment um, or post one on uh, on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Send us an email at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast or sign up for automatic notification using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creativity consultant, and Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, which is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week. Pediatric Oncology.